When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me today is Pastor Michelle Knight. Pastor Michelle is completing her senior year at Wartburg Seminary in Dubuque, Iowa. She'll soon be seeking ordination as a Lutheran pastor. Michelle serves on the board of the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy, the FRLC. She also serves on the advisory team for the Center of Addiction and Faith. It's such a pleasure to have Michelle here today to tell her story. I'm here with Michelle Knight, and Michelle and I are new friends. We just sort of found each other recently through our mutual interest in addiction and recovery. She is a student and a deacon. A vicar. I'm a vicar. Intern vicar, that's pastor. right. I'm a vicar. What's a vicar? Not everybody knows. Sure. It's an intern pastor. It's a term that we are using more in the Lutheran church. Um, for someone who's serving a congregation as a sole pastor, still a student in seminary, but it's longer than the traditional one-year internship. I actually have a three-year assignment. So they, they juiced us up and, and gave us the vicar title. So you're essentially a pastor in a church learning the ropes. Where's your parish? I serve in a rural a congregation in Warren, Illinois, St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And your seminary, where do you go? I go to Warburg Theological Seminary in Dubuque, and I am rounding out my final year. Good to be done. Yeah, have you got senioritis? You know it. <laughs> I think I'm one paper <laughs> project away from wearing a permanent blank stare. At this juncture, yeah, all yeah. have left the building in protest. Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're, you're one of the first ones to do this. And you're also serving on the board of uh, Center of Addiction and Faith. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. I serve on the board with you all, and I serve on the board of Sock Valley Voices of Recovery. It's a it's a budding recovery community project in the Sock Valley area of Illinois. So lots yeah. of good things happening here in northern Illinois. Yeah, so we want to hear your story. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what, what it was like. How did you come to this? Wow, well, we're going to travel back in time a little bit because my story actually begins during my confirmation service. And for those that aren't familiar with that in the, the Lutheran church, it is our affirmation of baptism that we go through a catechesis process, a learning process in our, our young teenage years. And then we have this ceremony, which is affirming our faith in the Lutheran church. And it's a beautiful service. So as a the confirmation class, it was our job to help serve communion. The moment that my dad actually came through the communion line and I was holding the chalice, I was in charge of the chalice that day. And I said, blood of Christ shed for you. And that's when I had my first sense of call to ministry. And I was 13 years old and this Holy Spirit had placed this knowing on my heart. And 
I was angry. I was so angry. I was full of a lot of rage and tears ran down my face. And I was just, you know, I had this moment where I'm communing my father and I'm feeling this message from my Holy Father. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me right now. You know, instead of replying, all right, God, you know, here I am. I'll do whatever you you want. We have a hymn for that, right? Here I am, Lord. And that was not in my vocabulary. My thoughts were, where were you, God, when I needed you? And so that summer, I moved past sneaking sips of my dad's beers. Because when you got to take dad a beer and open it, you could chug a little bit before you rounded the corner to the living room. And I was sneaking sips of peppermint schnapps from my, my grandma's refrigerator. I spent a lot of time at grandma's house. And I moved on to actually having that summer of my 13th, when I was 13, of having my first blackout drunk. I would spend my weekly allowance on wine coolers. You know, who, who which senior you could get to buy you wine coolers, paying a little extra so they would, you know, purchase enough for me to get through the weekend, hiding it in my bedroom. And my best friend actually at that time was allowed to drink at her home. So I spent a lot of weekends at her house too. And then I became pregnant and married at age 16 to a man who was eight years older. You know, and I thought I was going to rise above my circumstances. However, my husband was abusive with addictions of his own. And we soon divorced. It was a messy court proceeding that left me with four kids at age 22 I was terrified. I kept thinking, where are you, God? You know, I thought to myself so many times. And so I quickly entered into another marriage that was also extremely unhealthy. And after a second divorce at 26, and a mounting failure, feeling of failure, I was drinking recklessly and heavily. And so I decided to move out of the state of Iowa. I came to Illinois chasing yet another relationship because I couldn't stand the look of disappointment in my dad's eyes anymore. And I was still running from a God that I didn't understand. So while I was in this relationship, I often led secret lives, drinking to numb the shame and guilt that I felt. And after once again leaving this abusive relationship, things to seem to steady as career opportunities opened up. So in 2007, I got my investment licenses and I was struggling to get my investment business rooted after the market fallout and binge drinking from the stress and pressure not to fail. Drinking became the way that I dealt with pain and fear. And so for the next seven years, as life entered its peaks and valleys, drinking was my response to everything, whether it was celebration or despair, I drank. And it was starting to take more and more alcohol and stronger drinks to get that same buzz, that same sense of escape that I had had in the beginning. Drinking became more important to me than life itself, more important than relationships with my kids, with friends and family. Towards the end, I discovered prescription pain medication in ways that I could get it or steal it. So on January 5th, 2015, I went on my last bender. The next morning, January 6th, day of epiphany, I was found unconscious in my home by paramedics and rushed to the ER by ambulance. 
Then I later woke up in the intensive care unit with alcohol poisoning and prescription drug overdose. And I remember very little of the day and night before. My pastor had been called and she was there. And when she looked me in the eyes and said, it's going to be okay. I believed her. My where are you, God, changed to I need you, God. So I give a lot of credit to the doctors and the nurses on staff while I was an inpatient. Their concern was my suicide attempt, but my concern was much bigger. I didn't want to drink again. I didn't want the monster to come out in me ever again. A monster that destroyed relationships, a self-destructive monster. And so while I was in the hospital, I started reading the Psalms. And I was never one to just pick up my Bible and read it for fun. <laughs> but there was such a draw to this Holy Scripture, just that longing to have some connection, something outside of myself, some word of hope. And in reading the Psalms, I heard the cries of others too, calling to God for help. And so did I. I picked up an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting schedule before I left my inpatient stay. And I started going as soon as I was released. I left the hospital on a Friday and I was in a women's meeting on Saturday morning. And it was just an incredible group of mamas and grandmas. How, how could the Holy Spirit have just moved me to that perfect meeting for my first time to just be surrounded by so much love and other women that shared my story? They were wonderful. <laughs> they quickly adopted me into the fold and it was, it was wonderful. I got my first sponsor, who is still my sponsor today, almost six years later. And I started working hard at this program. Those first 30 days are maddening because your, your brain's responding to now feeling emotions and not knowing how to deal with all this stuff. And I was still acting impulsively, acting like a dry drunk, making really ridiculous decisions, <laughs> really ridiculous. So in March of that year, like about 30 days into my sobriety, my pastor sponsored me for a Vio de Cristo weekend. Maybe you've heard of that, Living Water. This was an all-women's weekend. And I thought, cool, a spiritual retreat, right? There, you know, get some time off from work, which I ended up quitting my job soon after anyway. And in good food, maybe I can lounge, you know, a little campfire. You know, I just had this whole like Hilton experience <laughs> formulated in my mind, right? And then there I was with all of these churchy ladies. You know what I'm talking about. The ones that are so tidy and perfect. And they're singing these Campfire Jesus songs, hugging each other. You know, I'm barely 60 days sober. And I'm clinging to this bag of candy <laughs> because I had sugar cravings so bad. So everywhere I went, I had a bag of candy with me. Like, oh my goodness, what in the hell am I doing here? I had thought that to myself. I just, I just couldn't imagine God wanting anything of me. I just thought I was too far gone. 
And now unknown to me at the time, the spiritual directors had actually taken up bets to see when I would bust out of there and start walking the 50 mile home. And then this gal, and I will never forget her, Sharice Jaslowski, she came up to me and hugged me. And I was like stiff and unresponsive. (laughs) It's like, oh, you're in my personal space. I don't really know how I feel about this. And she just took me by the shoulders. She just had this powerful grip. She was not letting me out. She was not letting me squirm away out of this. And she looked me square in the eyes and said to me, all of this, all of this is for you. And I'm looking around at all the ladies and all the, you know, food and all, all the things that they had done in these, at that point, two, three days. I'm like, what do you mean for me? Like, all of this is for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And she just had me in that grip and just kept repeating that over and over and over again until I heard the truth. One of my uh, professors just said the other day, and I, I, I love this quote, you are beloved. That is the greatest truth about your life. And that day, I heard that truth. And this fierce, fierce grace just swept in and over me until my heart just broke, just broke wide open. And all of those words that I heard in the church growing up, that I had read in scripture, that I had heard from my pastor in the pulpit, that were written upon my heart, fell inside. And the healing started happening. The Holy Spirit was calling me back, and God was there. You know, those are moments that we can't manufacture on our own. That's just the power of God. That's the power of God breaking into our brokenness, meeting us where we are at. Tenderly picking us up and said, mine, you are my beloved. No matter what we say about ourselves, do to ourselves, hear about ourselves, that's the truth. You are my beloved. And Jesus stood in front of me and was revealing the wounds on his wrists. He endured for a sinner like me. Loud and clear, I heard that I am worthy of God's love. We are all worthy of what's been done for us on the cross. The promise of God's love for me was also made for you and for the whole world, for everyone hearing this, made real through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. The promise of new life that we hear about in the epistles of Paul, this promise of new life and life abundant is for us. And so now I have to have an answer to my question that I had so many years ago. That question, where were you, God? Where were you at? This whole, all all these circumstances and trauma, where were you? Well, Jesus was there with those protective hands around my heart and my spirit that innermost part of my being, that no childhood sexual trauma or abusive relationship could destroy. And when it was safe, 
for that little girl to, to come back out. God in Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, led me into being the woman that I am today. Flawed, forgiven, redeemed, made new, made holy, given new life. And so today I see the very ground where pain and suffering take place in the world as holy ground. When I walk into meetings, when I talk with people who are still suffering an addiction and those that are just entering into recovery, families that are dealing with the collateral damage of alcoholism and addiction, I believe in those spaces, how to doubt that God is there. God is there fighting battles for us that we can't even comprehend. We so easily discount what's going on in people's lives. You know, we confess in the, in the creed that Jesus died on the cross, descended to the dead. And I know it is in that space where he found me. He ascended. He brought all of us out of the depths of hell and despair. So I know without a doubt, the places where we deem God is forsaken, God could never be there. God could never enter into those lives, those places of hell. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And so Jesus has always been in my life, embodied by the many, many people that I have met along the way. You know, God even created a miracle in me. When we have any doubts about what God is capable of doing, just take a look at ourselves. Each day that I have in sobriety is a miracle. And I could not be here. I could not have done it on my own. I tried. I tried to abstain. I tried to put it aside. But I couldn't do it on my own. So I cried out, God, I need you. I need you. And I need community. We surely need this in community. And that's the miracle of sobriety. And I will never thirst again. My favorite scripture is John 4, this woman at the well. And that whole conversation about living water. I know what that thirst feels like. And the longing and the being in the desert, just needing something. That insatiable thirst that we chase after bottle after bottle after bottle, pill after pill after pill. It could only be found in Christ. So I come back to the well over and over again on a daily, Lord, I need that living water from you. And it's there. So I've come out from behind the veil of anonymity to, to share my story with others in the world in hopes of carrying the message of hope and healing that can be found in recovery. And it's been a joyous, joyous journey. My sense of call that I received initially back when I was 13 years old was strong, made stronger more than ever at that women's weekend. And I'm still like, you've gotta be kidding me. You know, God has this irreverent sense of humor, right? But when we're marked with that indelible seal of the cross in our baptism, we just don't get to escape that. 
right? There's no boat. There's no uh, Jonah story that we can hop on because we're going to get called back to Nineveh one way or another. We're going to be put back on track one way or another. The Holy Spirit is relentless like that. But that's what all of us in our lives, relentless work of God chases after each and every one of you. Remind you, you are my beloved. Nothing separates you from my love. That's a powerful message. It's a powerful message to not only share with people, but hear the words for yourself, right? We are least likely to be graceful to ourselves. It's so easy to, to, and I've been told more than once, to take that bat that you're beating yourself with and set it in the corner. (laughs) Because, you know, we often say things to ourselves, about ourselves, that we wouldn't say to a child. We wouldn't say to a a five-year-old child. Why would we say that about God's creation when we know that we have been made by love, in love, to love? So that little nugget of wisdom came to another meeting that I was in this last week from a wonderful, wonderful um, friend who reminds us that, you know, our sobriety, and I still consider myself being a toddler in sobriety at, at almost 60 years. I'm a newbie. My little sprout is just barely above the dirt, right? It's a lot of nurturing root growth that I'm doing right now to sustain sobriety. And she says, don't, don't be harsh on yourself. Think about, God isn't saying that about you. God doesn't want you to say things about yourself. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.
I always feel like I'm on sacred ground when I hear stories of, of what God has done in people's lives. That's um, just always very moving for me. I, I always marvel at that, you know, we have these stories and there's a lot of us that do. I mean, God has done this kind of stuff in my life, did it in your life and um, in lots of people's lives. And yet in the church, we don't hear these stories. Does that surprise you? It, it does very much so. And that's that's been a big part of my specialized ministry in seminary. I'm kind of the squeaky wheel that's, you know, advocating to get this in our curriculum. I mean, it's not even talked about in pastoral care classes. So we have we have issues already in seminaries that aren't offering curriculum around how to deal with alcoholism and addiction. How do we talk about it? What's the Lutheran articulation of of the gospel message to those who are suffering in recovery? Um, and how do we how are we treating families? Because if it doesn't start with our, our leaders being able to comfortably talk about it and share our stories, it, it's not happening in our congregations and our communities where there's such a stigma attached. I'm very open about it. I preach about it. I talk about it. I've shared my story. My congregation knows full well because right away they do this annual wine tasting trip. They go together to choose their wine for Lent. In the first year that I was here, they're like, oh, Vicar Michelle, you have to come with us. And right away, I'd say, I'm sorry. A, that's not a safe place for me. I, I can't, you know, I'm not comfortable. So when just talking about it, what's it like, you know, being an alcoholic? What are some changes that you make in your life? You know, new friends, new playgrounds, right? And in sharing that and being vulnerable with people. And that first conversation open the door for others to come forward and, and talk to me in private about husbands and parents and households that they grew up in and, and that that whole environment of shame and not being able to talk about it and share being abused being neglected being afraid in my sharing of a story they felt safe to share theirs and then burden themselves. It, it's important work. It's important work. You know, we come into our sanctuaries, not perfect people. We'd like to think that we are, right? Behind our pressed pants and our collars and, and you know, our dresses. We'd like to, we'd like people to see us all put together. But of all the places in the world, the sanctuary, faith communities should be the place where we can come in the room unraveled and authentic and broken and talk about it. I know that when I sit around the tables and I hear other people witnessing to the power of God, what God has done in their life, they're ministering to me. That's really powerful witness. Those are the stories we need to be telling in our churches. Yeah, and that was, to me, is um, the uh, power of our stories and our vulnerability and the gift that uh, people who have been healed by God have to give to the church. You know, I think about the story of the demoniac that Jesus healed and was told, go and tell everyone. And I think about those stories bring healing and hope to others. And uh, so I'm really grateful for your story. Thank you for sharing it, powerful stuff. And I'm glad people like you are being called into the ministry. And I'm also sorry for you because, <laughs> well, and here's why, because you have you have a ministry that the church does does not readily accept. And so there's going to be resistance all along the way. And I marvel at that because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. 
He wanted to heal broken people, and the church didn't want anything to do with it. And it's still today the problem. Expect to go to the cross with this. <laughs> What's well, funny, because you and I, that came up in our conversation when we first started talking. I was like, dude, I'm already facing the resistance. And it continues. Um, but that just makes my voice even louder. <laughs> I feel like it's a sign that we're, you know, we're onto something. I mean, if, if there's resistance, you think, well, why, why is that? I mean, the, these are the kinds of things that Jesus went after. And uh, why would the church be resistant to it? It's, it's really quite interesting. Because addiction isn't just about those like you and I who got really, really bad. Yeah, there's plenty of addiction that doesn't take you down that far, but robs you of all kinds of life. And you know about that, and uh, a lot of people don't. It's surprising to me how little people understand. Yeah, that's exactly true. You know, I never lost my driver's license. I drove drunk so many times, never got busted. I never showed up drunk at work, so I never, well, that they knew about. I never lost my job. I never ended up in jail. I never ended up in any legal trouble. It's those kind of people we're missing, right, that are, that are doing this under the radar, that are suffering an addiction quietly in our pews, next to us we don't even know yeah i think about that term uh, lives of quiet desperation because this is a disease that isolates people and you can be in a crowded church and just be screaming inside oh absolutely i yeah many years i would just put my head down i'd be crying some things would touch my heart and i'm crying and i'm like nobody sees me nobody hears me nobody knows the hell i'm in and there's this feeling of exile too because now that you're, we're in isolation, I'm trying to keep this my dirty little secret, right? And there's this whole component of exile that I see happening with our folks in recovery now who've come out of inpatient services and are coming out of jail sentences and are working really hard to get clean and sober. But now they've been ostracized by their families, by their friends, because they're no longer the drinking buddies. I said, I lost half of my friends when I got sober. I lost the other half when I went to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> around her yeah. <laughs> but there's that sense of disconnect now you know looking for employment trying to put their lives back together so that community knows the story of exile they could relate to God's people way back in the old testament so what are we doing as a faith community and as leaders ecumenical partners as well in communities to welcome people back to welcome people home bring them out of exile. I think we need to be mindful of that. And that's that's really at the, at the top of, of my list too. Not only ministry in my congregational setting in, in parish life, but being in a part of a group of multi-denominations across inter-religions in our communities and linking our arms together, bring these beloveds out of exile, rejoin them to community. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's going to create problems. So we don't want to do that, right? <laughs> I actually had chatted with my doctor about this because we were catching up as far as what's going on in my life. And I shared, you know, what's been going on and my passions and all that. And he's like, oh, Michelle, you're going to get hurt doing that. Well, Jesus didn't have a lot of warm and fuzzy moments either. I think Jesus exemplified the pinnacle of hurt. You know, when I went into the ministry, I said, okay, Jesus, I'll be a pastor, but I want it to be easy and fun. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah. potlucks and, and yeah, hugs, yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. He did say something about taking up your cross and and enduring some some difficulties. And so uh, this is a ministry that you're gonna 
endure some of that, but but think of the lives you'll touch and save. That's uh, that's the bottom line. It's it's the awe and wonder that that God would choose me. God chooses all of us to be vessels of God's grace. We're all already equipped with everything we need to love our neighbor. Yeah. So tell me just uh, about your sense of call to seminary. I mean, you, you you talked about that taking the communion as a child and then later with these women. Uh, but how did that actually translate into you actually going to a seminary and applying? And When I returned home from that weekend and I was sitting in my pastor's office and I was crying and I'm like, Pastor Terry, can you explain this to me, this feeling? And I just laid it out for her and she's like, I know. She was the first person to outwardly affirm the sense of call. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There's far better qualified people in the world. You know, I haven't even taught a Sunday school class. Are you kidding me? And we just had a long discussion. um, And then I applied to candidacy right away. That was, yeah, that was that first year. And of course, I only had what, four or five months of sobriety at that time, um, my sense of call was validated by the candidacy committee. However, they did postpone me for a year. They wanted me to have some more sobriety time. And in wise discernment, making sure that it wasn't another impulsiveness because we can transfer addictions, right? So now I could have transferred this to addiction of religion or just like we move between addictions, you know, from drinking to shopping, from pornography to drugs. I mean, there's just, there's transference of addiction. So everybody wanted to make sure that Michelle had all of her, her bricks square on the load, <laughs> you know, and that's okay. So a year later, 2016, I, I, I'd proven, you know, that I was steady and I was staying the course and the sense of call had just not dissipated. The spirit was just not leaving me alone. I came back and uh, reapplied and went through the, I was entrance, of course, went through the the psyche valves and all of that. And I was on my way to summer Greek. (laughs) I was registered at seminary and and on my way to to begin classes. And here we are. Yeah. So you're winding up your senior year. And uh, where do you imagine God calling you from here? Any ideas? Any sense of that? I do. I do. I really feel a strong call to parish ministry, to a larger community setting where there's uh, interfaith and interreligious ecumenical opportunities where I can be part of a sober community and s- establishing sober community. Um, I do see my specialized ministry being with the recovery community and, and serving the, the very underserved community of addiction. Yeah, I've got a lot of irons in the fire as far as uh, potential projects and um, excited about what the Holy Spirit will ultimately do with all of that because yeah. I can have all the plans in the world. And God can be like, oh, that's so cute. But I've got something else for you. (laughs) What's the old old saying? How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly God has plans for you. It's been at work on you for a long time. And and it's all happening. So it's exciting to see. And it's uh, enriching for all of us who hear stories like yours. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I look forward to, you know, the years ahead that you and I will work together to help raise awareness and and save some lives and help be a part of the process of saving people who go through this because it's no fun. No, it's no fun. Nobody should do this alone. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross alone either. 
Right. And, you know, this pandemic is making it even worse and people are more isolated. We, we have a we have a lot of work to do. So I look forward yes, to doing that do. with you and uh, seeing what God does with you next. I'm, I'm totally excited. I'm so thrilled that we connected. Our paths crossed. Well, blessings to you and thank you for doing the show. We'll continue on. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our pastor upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, That phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization. Mm-hmm.